Welcome to Conversations Live. This evening, we're digging into a thrilling element of BC's future. Thrilling. Our economy. Note that I said thrilling, which could be taken as a positive, or it could be thrill thrillingly negative. I'm a little on the fence right at the moment, and I'm hoping that our panel won't leave me there. We come to you tonight from KPMG's Ignition Vancouver, which is located within the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations, who have lived on and continue to call these lands home. Heichka. Now to our agenda. At its core, economics is the study of how humans have made decisions in the face of scarcity. Those decisions range from individual, family, and business, as well as societal and governmental. Virtually every major problem facing the world today, from climate to world poverty, to the conflicts in Syria, Ukraine, and Sudan, have economic dimensions. We in British Columbia are fortunate. We're nestled away in a little slice of paradise. However, we don't live in isolation. So what's happening around the world affects us in so many ways. Is my job secure? Can I afford a mortgage or rent? Should I buy a car or a bike? or walk. My gosh, the price of groceries is through the roof and going out for dinner. Well, maybe not. A recent Research Co. poll showed that the soaring cost of food is forcing more and more people to set aside environmental concerns about food production when making a purchasing decision. Amy, can you please play the $25 hamburger clip from Ian Tostenson of the Restaurant Association? We're seeing compression on margins. So, you know, all of the stuff in our businesses are going up, heat, gas, light, rent, all that stuff, uh, labor costs. Um, some is being caused by governments. So here we're seeing inflation being driven by 10-day sick leave and, you know, an employer health tax and putting up the minimum wage. All those things take their toll. The problem we have is that we're getting to a $25 hamburger. And that is going to be a real problem for people that are really looking at their discretionary money these days in terms of what's going on in their particular life. Inflation is heating up again. Interest rates in Canada went up on the 7th of June and could go higher yet. In the U.S., the Fed held rates at between 5 and 5.25 last week, but suggested if the economy doesn't cool down enough, then the rates may rise again. These rates are driving up the cost of mortgages, both for new buyers and those renewing. And credit card rates are hitting record highs. The average rate is 22.37% in Canada. 22.37%. It's remarkable. Germany's officially in a recession. The UK is expected to go into recession. The Canadian and US economies are slowly but thankfully uh, expected to just skip along the edges of a recession just skip along. That doesn't mean the mood is upbeat. According to a recent Nanos poll, 60% of Canada's top CEOs say the economy is weakening. Output per hour has shrunk in 10 of the last 11 quarters and was lower during the last quarter than it was in the first quarter of 2017. And add to that, the same poll says 6 in 10 CEOs say Canada's on the wrong track for investment. That sentiment is echoed by David Williams, the president of the Association of Professional BC Economists of BC, who says Canada's on track for a lost decade in real 
average income growth. He goes on to say Canada is expected to rank last in the OECD for GDP growth per capita over the next 40 years. Amy, can you please play that clip that we have of David from last week's Conversations That Matter? Two ways to generate income in an economy. You've got the number of workers you have and the number of hours you can work, and then you've got how productive you are with that time. Uh, and that's a function of how much capital, equipment that you've got, are you using the latest technology, the latest business practices, uh, are you doing R&D, and are you exporting and operating at scale? And what the data is saying is that all other countries are going to eclipse us in all of those things, capital per worker, innovation and R&D per worker, skill accumulation and operating at scale. All these other countries are going past us because we are rated the, it's projected to be the, the seventh uh, weakest uh, productivity growth performance over 2020 to 2030, and then dead last in productivity growth over 2020, uh, 2030 to 2060. Ouch. A recent Greater Vancouver Board of Trade report states that BC businesses are shouldering an extra $6.5 billion in government cost increases thanks to a rise in corporate rates, new paid sick leave, and the business portion of the escalating carbon tax. Add in 21% rise in minimum wage and new statutory holidays that add 200 million more in cost to businesses. Am I scaring you yet? Also, I want to mention the price of gasoline jumped 10%, uh, 10 cents at the pump this past weekend. So what does it all mean? What does it all mean to you? Amy, let's go to the poll from our good friend Mario Canseco, a research co that he conducted for us on British Columbians' view of the economy. Fewer than half of BC residents believe the economic conditions in both Canada and BC are very good or good right now. When residents are asked to rate the finances of their own household, more than three in five say the situation is positive. There is a significant gender gap when BC residents review the economic conditions in both Canada and BC. While more than half of men say things are okay at this moment, just over a third of women feel the same way. Half of BC residents think BC's economy is currently in bad or very bad shape. In three regions, majorities of residents are experiencing economic anxiety. Northern BC, the Fraser Valley and Metro Vancouver. The situation is slightly better in Southern British Columbia and Vancouver Island, which is the only area where a majority of residents think BC's economy is doing well at this time. Uncertainty over the current economic conditions is making BC residents take matters into their own hands. More than half say they have cut back on discretionary expenses, including almost two-thirds of those aged 35 to 54. More than a third of BC residents are also cutting back on the amount of money they save every month, and 3 in 10 have had to reduce essential expenses such as food and utilities, a number that rises markedly among residents of the Fraser Valley and Northern BC. We also see BC residents tightening their belts when it comes to the future, more than a third have postponed a significant purchase for the household, such as a vehicle or a home renovation, and almost 3 in 10 had to delay a planned holiday. BC residents in the middle income bracket are more likely to have abandoned plans to be away from their city or town because of economic anxiety. At the height of the global financial crisis in 2008, the main concern of BC residents was losing their jobs. In 2023, Unemployment is a major concern for only a quarter of BC residents, with majorities expressing unease about the cost of gas, housing and food. The rising price of food is a more prevalent concern 
for BC residents aged 35 to 54 and aged 55 and over, as well as for residents of Northern BC. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchCo. Okay, so here to help us make sense of the myriad moving parts of the economy are five distinguished people who will hopefully make us say, yes, there is some sunshine on the horizon. Uh, there's uh, many things that we can learn from, grow from, and hopefully have uh, you know, a good near-term future and long-term future. Our panelists are the BC Minister of Finance, Katrina Conroy, KPMG Managing Partner, Walter Pella, Audlem Brown, Director of Research, Murray Leith, past CEO Covenant House, Krista Thompson, and the venerable economist, Jock Finlayson. Jock, <laughs> good to have you here. Now, just before we begin, I'd like to express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. Our presenting sponsors are KPMG, Helijet, and Invest Vancouver. Our event sponsors are Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, BD, the Port of Vancouver, the BC Securities Commission, the Digital Technology Supercluster, and Research Co. And our media partner is the Vancouver Sun, which we are live netcasting onto right now. Our supporters are BCIT, the Surrey Board of Trade, and Canadian Beef. And I want to especially thank Apple G Public Relations and give a big shout out to my team at Oh Boy Productions, who are experts in live online and virtual production uh, conferences such as this. Now, one last thing for everyone who wishes to pose a question, please go to Slido, whether you're online or here in the room, enter the passcode conversations and send in your questions. Sean, our Slido master, will be receiving your questions and bringing them forward to us. And while we can't get to them all, your questions will also help to inform me on topics and questions that we'll be bringing up this evening. Now to our panel. I'd like to ask each of you to consider opening remarks on your perspective on the economy. Minister Conroy, I'd like to start with you. How does the economy look to you when you look out from your desk in Victoria? <coughs> Well, thanks, Stu, and after the doom and gloom that you presented there, I, I would like to give a little bit of a, a better uh, opinion, I guess. Um, so I have been a Minister of Finance since December. Um, it's been a fairly steep learning curve. I, I'm not an economist, and so I'll leave the economic answers up to the esteemed economists on the, on the panel. But uh, I have done, I have a lot of lived experiences, and uh, what we recognize as, as a government is that, yeah, things are tough right now. Um, it's been a tough few years. I mean, we've uh, had the, we've survived the pandemic, which has created significant issues in this province. And we recognize by helping people, um, we actually had one of the strongest economies in the province. And, and I, I do recognize that things are tough, and I will talk about that. But I do want to acknowledge the fact that uh, we, you, we've proven that you can invest in people, and you also can have a strong economy. We were told you can't do that. You have to have either or, but it's not true. Um, we had one of the strongest economies in Canada, and we still do. 
Um, so I know that uh, it, things have been tough for people, though, you know, and, and part of that's inflation, which as a government we have no control over, but we can do some things about it. Um, we recognize by helping people that uh, we are helping people to get ahead. Um, there's been a number of issues that have been raised that I'll probably get asked questions about, but some of the things that we have done have been um, to make sure that uh, we're supporting the, some of the people with the lowest income in the province so that they, they, they can thrive. Um, we've done a number of, of affordability initiatives that have, have definitely helped people. Um, one of the things that, I mean, when we did our last budget, we, well, actually I was told we, I inherited a budget. I'd like to acknowledge Carol, the former minister, she'd understand this. When uh, I became minister, um, the budget was pretty well well, it was pretty well baked, but uh, I got a new minister and a new premier and, and each wanted their own footprint on it, handprint on it. So we looked at what can we do to, to do just that. Um, so we did a whole affordability uh, profile of, of making sure that we were investing in people. Like we uh, increased the family benefit by 10%. We added $500 for single parents. We um, One of the most, one of the things that we got the most um, I think the, the most kudos for is we brought in free birth control. I have had more response from that than from anything we have done. And, it, and you think, okay, it's $25 a month average you know, over a period of 10, 20 years, sometimes longer. Um, so it does add up, but people have, it's been significant actually. Are we allowed to tell stories? I was at an event, a, a fundraiser for a, a kidney foundation. I'm a kidney donor, so I go to their kidney foundation, and, and I'm walking around, all of a sudden I hear, minister, and whenever you hear that, Carol would know, you kind of, oh, Jesus, <laughs> put my head down, and, oh, yes, yeah. Um, and he said, thank you, four teenage daughters, thank you. <laughs> so, and it, but it, we appeared, you know, I had a 49-year-old friend who said, I'm still paying for birth control, so thank you. I mean, it, it, so it, it, things like that add up. Um, the rent, uh, the, you know, we've said for a long time we were going to bring in the, in the, the, the support to renters. Um, there's many people in this province that rent, and people said, oh, it's not going to be enough. Um, it's $400 that's going to be in renters' pockets. It's going to be next year's, uh, next year's on back on your income tax, and 80% of the people that rent in this province will benefit by it. Um, so it, it, little things like that, uh, you know, bringing in a freeze on the base rate of ICBC, that helps as well. So, I mean, I can go off for, I don't know, are you telling me I got to cut no, my, no, okay. Yeah. I thought he was going to, you know, I go like this. That's when I, that's, that's when I know I've got to can it. But so we've done a lot of initiatives like that because we recognize that, uh, that the times are tough. We've brought in a number of food security issues um, and supports to, to um, people at uh, food banks and uh, farmers markets because the supports at farmers markets not only support the farmers that we really want to support because we want to have a stronger food industry in BC so we don't have to go through what we did with COVID where we're having more food that it should be produced in BC than it's produced offshore. Great that the BC uh, or the beef breeders or, or cattlemen are part of the, or your sponsor as a uh, beef producer myself, I, I recognize that it's it's critical. Um, in fact, when they talk about AI, I always wonder why they're talking about artificial insemination, but it's not, and it's a new. Yeah, so, um, but um, it so it, you know, we brought in a number of initiatives to help people because we recognize that it, it's it's really needed. But we also know that moving forward, there's there's tough times. Um, we know that uh, the economy is going to see slowing uh, over the next uh, year. It's 
going to pick up, we hope, uh, in 2024. But uh, we are making sure that uh, we're investing, that we're going to continue to invest in people. And that's exactly what we did with our um, the surplus. We um, took considerable dollars and, and invested that right back into the province. Um, we will have money left to invest in the, uh, to put back down on our debt because we recognize that we need to be prudent. We need to have a, a, a strong forecast allowance, a strong <coughs> contingencies, but so that we have the funding that's there when we need it. And uh, that's one thing we're going to do. And I, I know I'll have more opportunities to talk about some of the other issues we're doing, but I'll stop there. Well, one of the questions that comes out of what you were saying is you say we know that the economy is going to be slowing, and you can play a role in helping to stimulate the economy. What are some things that you're considering right now? Well, there's a number. We've uh, invested in a number of businesses that have come to BC. Um, uh, um, upsell, no, uh, Absellular. Yeah, the you know, there's a number of, of um, Absellera. tech. Absellera. Yeah. Absellera. God, that's bad. Um, but there's a number of companies that we've invested in collaboration with the federal government and that want to come to BC, want to invest in BC. There's been significant investments. Um, people want to come to BC. I just did a recent uh, investment tour of uh, New York, Toronto, and Montreal. And people are buying bonds. They want. They like what we're doing in BC. But they like what we're doing with ESG, the environment, uh, social, and, and governance. Um, so there's many issues there that we're working on. Um, we are reaching out to people. We, we have some of the highest uh, migration numbers in, in the country right now, which has its pros and cons. I mean, we, we have, we're going to have over a million jobs in the next 10 years, new jobs in this, in this province. And so we need people to, to do the work. And, and, uh, but at the same time, we, they want housing. And so we're investing in housing. Housing's an issue. Um, but we also know that uh, we, want, we want to train our own people. We've invested significantly in, in um, post-secondary with our, our future ready program where not only will we uh, are investing in people to get the training they need to do the jobs we're also going to be supporting businesses to support them to get the the people that work for them the training they need or to hire the people so that they can get the training and that's 30 million dollars that's going to be announced this fall and, and how we're going to be able to help businesses to get the people they need because we know listening to businesses there's a there's a number of issues that we could all talk about I mean, but uh, one of them is labor and we hear constantly from, from businesses that labor is their biggest issue, trying to get people. And one thing I didn't mention is our childcare program. And we know last year, 75% of the women or people that came into the workforce were actually women. And it was directly attributed to our childcare programs and the fact that they could go back to work because they had affordable childcare. And, and that's been huge for small businesses, particularly they've told us that, uh, you know, those women are coming to work in their businesses and, and that they've got childcare to be able to do that as well. Okay, we'll come back to you. Jock, I'm going to move, move down the, the line here. What's the economy look like to yeah. you? Because you have a, quite a different perspective. Yeah, somewhat different. I was a bit worried I might, the minister might steal my thunder, but you didn't, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, the, uh, l l let me flag a couple things I think that are, are, are critical in looking at the kind of landscape we've got right now. One is inflation. Um, just to put some numbers around it, we had... Uh, Three decades of low stable inflation, around 2% a year. People got used to that. Businesses, households, savers, investors. And it suddenly shot up to almost 7% in Canada in 2022 on an average annual basis. So that has been quite destabilizing um, and has triggered the second thing I want to mention, which is the cost of money and interest rates. You referenced this a couple of minutes ago, uh, Stu. So just to put numbers around that, uh, Variable rate mortgages, five-year mortgages have tripled uh, over the past uh, 18 months or so, and all other lending rates have gone up uh, in tandem. 
That is a sea change in the financial environment for a lot of uh, British Columbians, households, and businesses. Um, aggravated by the fact we have high debt levels here. Uh, household debt in Canada is about 180% of disposable income. <coughs> BC, we're probably running at about 210% because people have larger mortgages here because the cost of housing has traditionally been higher than elsewhere, and we've had a lot of demand for housing. So higher inflation, the higher interest rates that the central bank has brought forward to try and tame inflation are big factors, big kind of external shocks um, that we're wrestling with in BC. And I'm optimistic we'll get through that. Um, it's not permanent. Um, and we'll, we'll hopefully be through it you know, by sometime next year. The other thing that we're watching closely is uh, what's happening in the global market. Uh, we're seeing some tentative signs of kind of deglobalization as people talk about repatriating supply chains. The US focuses on reducing dependence on China uh, for a lot of critical materials and high technology goods. Now, I will say at the moment they're talking about it more than actually doing it, but I think there's a pretty strong consensus in the US and to a lesser extent Europe that, they, uh, that there's a policy desire to reduce dependence on China. That's an enormous change in the global market. China is the biggest economy in the world. If you measure uh, output using purchasing power parity exchange rates, it's the second biggest. If you look at market exchange rates, it's the biggest manufacturer in the world. It's the biggest exporter in the world. It's the biggest importer of commodities in the world. So relations with China and how those supply chains uh, evolve going forward, the trade relationships, I think will bear quite heavily on our economic prospects over the medium term. Um, so those are things that we don't really control uh, here in BC or even in Canada. And I think our governments are, are you know, trying to address the cost of living pressures triggered by high inflation. Um, they're perhaps responding to the, the issues around higher interest rates, although I am a bit concerned that by ramping up spending quite dramatically, both especially at the federal level to a lesser extent across the provinces, that's actually making the job of the central bank a little harder to get inflation down because more spending in an economy where the supply side is constrained will automatically translate into price or pressure, and we have seen some of that. But inflation is coming down. Uh, it averaged almost 7% last year. This year, we'll probably end the year at maybe 35 or 4 um, and as we move into 2024, we'll see a further retreat in the all items consumer price index. And when that happens, and I think it will happen, although we have a bit of debate about that internally with my colleagues, we will sort of have the conditions in place for the cost of money to come back down somewhat. But I don't believe we're going to go back to the days of essentially free money, which frankly is what we were operating with for many, many years up until 2022. And I really think there's going to be a kind of recalibration of monetary policy in a lot of the major economies. And the cost of credit will be higher uh, in the post-pandemic world uh, than it was in the pre-pandemic world. And we're going to have to get used to that um, as, as borrowers, investors, policymakers, and in other roles. So those are, those are some of the big kind of picture things that I, I see bearing down on BC. Later, we can talk about what we're doing inside BC uh, to deal with building the economy. But I, I do think, you know, BC is a small place. We're 1% of North America in terms of total economic output. So what happens outside our borders here is really quite profound in shaping the overall macro environment that we, we find ourselves in. 
So it's easy for us to look at it at that big macro level and go, okay, there's not much that we can do about it and how it affects us. We, for most of us, we ride our way through that storm. But for those who are coming at, in life at a, at a different perspective, uh, who need assistance, who need help, for those who work in the giving and caring societies, what does the economy look like right now, Krista? Well, for those of you who are wondering what the heck I was doing in the room, um, <laughs> Stu has just told you. Um, I think I'm coming at this from a couple of different perspectives. One is an employer uh, who employs a couple hundred people in downtown Vancouver who are mid to lower income uh, earners uh, and, and often young or have young families. Uh, I also sort of take a look at the philanthropic uh, sector and how our social safety net is going to fare through this, um, and then the third place is folks who are not just low income, but no income, and what, what does this mean for them? And you know, I, I'll, start with, I'll start with a perspective as an employer, uh, because most of you will relate to this. Um, you know, our folks are younger, uh, they haven't seen a recession, not, not a meaningful recession before. They kind of took their jobs for granted. Uh, they're not taking their jobs for granted so much anymore. Uh, but they do need some help. Um, you know, they spend more of their money on rent, food, and the basics as a percentage of their income. And those are actually some of the highest inflation, uh, inflationary uh, components of, of life these days. So as an employer, you know, I've got to dig deep. And luckily, many of us hoarded our profits from earlier uh, cycles. And we have some cash that we can help our employees with. So five, six, seven percent across the board wage increases are happening. And uh, uh, government obviously is, a, is in the same situation. And we're competing with government in many ways to, to uh, keep our folks at least at, at par with uh, public sector workers. Not an easy thing to do, as you can imagine. Luckily, many of our folks are very passionate and sort of have a mission focus, but at the same time, they have to be able to feed their families and pay their rent. And so uh, we work really hard to try and get them parity to, uh, to the competing uh, employers. From a philanthropic point of view, um, you know, Frank Joostra, I, I went to a, a, a session with Frank Joostra back in 2008 when the proverbial SHIT was hitting the fan um, in the banking collapse. And Frank, you know, he's a unsung philanthropist in the city, I think. Anyway, he, he said, you know, for all of you rich people out there, like me, you feel like you want to hide your wallet. That was literally a direct, direct quote. Hide your wallet in times of, uh, of this kind of mayhem in the marketplace. You need to do the opposite. Because if you don't support the communities that your business is operating in, your business actually will be hurt by this. So think of it as a business investment. So in some ways, uh, my organization actually thrived in the two, 2008 um, mass because many people were actually um, helping more. They felt they felt that the need was higher. I'm not sure that's going to happen in this uh, the same same way this this time around. There's so many different factors. Um, I will say though, with higher interest rates, many of our donors are fixed in income folks, right? Older women, older families, uh, who um, rely on bonds and and fixed income, and they are actually quite happy about higher rates. So. There's more generosity in in, uh, in in that, and with no income, folks. Well, you know, all of us feel this terrible pain when we walk down the sidewalks of our city and see folks who are living uh, in conditions that we would never have imagined would happen <coughs> in our own city. And governments, you know, government has 
batted its head against this wall for years. So is my sector. Obviously, there's things we have to do differently. Um, and I could spend another hour on that. But you know, fast food is actually one of the lifelines that no-income folks, homeless folks, have in our city. And fast food prices are up more than the price of the grocery store. So you know, they're really challenged and continue to use drugs to, to in many ways mitigate hunger. Sounds weird, but crystal meth is an awesome diet plan. And so if you're doing enough of those kind of drugs, you're not hungry and you don't worry about where you're gonna get your next meal. It's a strange strategy, I know. Anyway, I, um, I do wanna say on a positive side that you know, we are resilient. I think Minister said this about British Columbia, we are a very resilient sector, the nonprofit sector here, and uh, I think we're creative and we'll, we'll um, certainly uh, follow your footsteps in being creative in your businesses. We will be too. Walter, you resided that intersection between what's happening in the world, what's happening with government policies, and how it directly impacts businesses um, in their ability to generate revenue, to create profit, uh, and deal with a myriad of government uh, rules, regulations, and in particular taxes. When you look at the economy right now, how is it affecting businesses' ability to uh, function, operate, and hopefully thrive here in British Columbia? Yeah, thanks, Stu. And, and maybe that is the perspective that I can offer. Um, also, as an employer, uh, we have about 1,800 people operating across uh, 12 offices in, in regions throughout the province. Uh, but the interesting perspective is that we um, serve um, private sector, public sector, not-for-profits, private individuals. Uh, and so we have a, a real insight into what's what's happening uh, into, uh, in, into the economy as a whole. Uh, I also uh, sit on... Uh, the, as a director on the Board of Trade and Business Council. So maybe that's what I could offer as a perspective on what's happening with business. Small business accounts for about a third of the econ the provincial economy. The private sector as a whole is close to 80% of, uh, of, of GDP. Uh, all of the jobs that are uh, really pr uh, produced uh, here uh, in, in BC. Uh, so it's important to have that vibrant uh, private sector um, uh, environment uh, and it's an interesting time for business right now it's it's very hard to forecast and plan and predict in the face of uh, some very interesting dynamics so on the one hand uh, a, a mounting cost structure with uh, a very tight labor market I think the one theme that crosses all sectors is uh, the the uh, competition over labor uh, skilled labor uh, and rising compensation expectations, which is uh, inflating input costs. Uh, and the same can be said on uh, other inputs for on, on the business side because of the inflationary environment that we're in and supply chain disruptions that uh, have continued uh, past, uh, past the pandemic. Um, at the same time, rising interest rates affect business as much as they affect consumers. Uh, and as well at not just interest costs, but uh, equity costs, so return expectations of investors. So the whole, uh, if I could not to be in, too much of an accountant, but the you know, right-hand side of the balance sheet uh, and the expense side of the profit and loss statement is, is really being challenged right now in the face of these challenges that we're seeing with the economy on, on the revenue side. And so 
where you look at BC being a very much an export-oriented economy with a, with a softening uh, and slowing global economy, uh, including in the commodity sector, some uh, real concerns of, uh, on, on the revenue side. And domestically, for domestic businesses, the challenges that we've been hearing about uh, with uh, consumers, and you saw that with the poll at the at, at the outset, with consumers facing this uncertainty over, you know, having to curtail some of their expenses because of their own uh, increased borrowing costs and other expenses, uh, and and so this is this is a challenge. While at the same time, in a climate where uh, we have to be frank here, rising uh, costs of doing business in in BC. So the Board of Trade recently released a study about a couple of weeks ago on the mounting costs between 2022 and 2024, an estimated $6.5 billion of increased uh, costs uh, on, uh, imposed on businesses from the new employer's health tax to increasing carbon taxes, increasing corporate taxes, uh, and as well as some of the other regulatory um, uh, constraints and, and just a complex uh, environment to to do business, so that's that. It, it, it is a ch it's a challenging time for the for the business sector, which is so vital to achieving everything that we want to do. Really, as a, as a province, uh, including supporting you know some of the great causes that we want to on the on the uh, philanthropic and ESG side. Um, and um, yeah, I would I, I would say that there is also water in the glass. Uh, in, in, in the sense that we're also in a really dynamic time where things are moving so fast. And so, you know, in April, for example, we held a summit on AI uh, and looking at the potential that a technology like that could have on dealing with some of the productivity uh, challenges <coughs> that, uh, that uh, the Canadian marketplace has, has faced. Uh, and just the speed of change in today's technology-enabled world, um, you know, I, th I think there's a lot to um, that we could position ourselves uh, around as 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 a province and as a as a business that there's that we could really look forward to. Murray, you have a different perspective. You're looking out from Vancouver, but you are looking at markets globally, and you're advising on behalf of uh, your clients at Audlin Brown. What does the world economically look like to you right now? Um, well, I guess the first thing that I'd say is, uh, thank God we invest in businesses and not economies, um, because the economic outlook is uncertain. And, you know, there's decent odds that we're going to have a recession. But if if investing was about, you know, investing in, in economies, then China's economy would have done a lot better than the U.S. economy over the last 10 years. And that is not the case. The U.S. market has been on top of the world. Um, so it's about businesses, not not economies. And, and uh, the stock market typically goes down the year before uh, a recession and actually normally rallies in the year of a recession. But when I'm thinking about the economy, I think we have to, you know, keep in mind, Jock mentioned uh, free money. In nine of the last 15 years, our central bank and the U.S. central bank had administered interest rates pegged at zero. And unfortunately, we're learning that there are consequences of, of that. You know, my wife likes to say that... Uh, I blame everything on the central banks, and maybe I'll tell you a little bit why. You know, when 
central banks lower interest rates when we're in a recession or there's a crisis of, of you know, the pandemic was a crisis. And, and there's good reasons for that. When you lower interest rates, three things happen. Consumers borrow and spend, businesses invest, and there's a wealth effect. Just when, like when mortgage rates go down, house prices go up, all asset prices go down making people feel wealthier or maybe making people wealthier and when they're wealthier they spend and all those things help get the economy back on its feet but you don't need to keep interest rates at zero when the economy is back on on its feet because there's there's negative unintended consequences of all of those things when interest rates are too low people borrow or increase their leverage and take on too much risk. There's a misallocation of capital in societies. Zombie companies are kept alive instead of the fittest um, taking market share. You know, in my business, we love it when companies buy back stock. But when they, and that's great as a shareholder, but it's not great for society because they're not investing in the future. And the third thing that happens when you keep interest rates low or uh, for persistent periods of time is you you drive up asset values. And when you're in the investment business, that's wonderful for our clients and our business, but it's not good for inequality. And we have so much inequality in the world right now, it's driving crazy politics. Sure doesn't look sustainable to me. And I don't think that's gonna be good whether you're rich or poor. So to me, the silver lining of what's going on is that we have the worst inflation in 40 years. We've had to slam on the brakes to deal with that in terms of raising interest rates. But on the other side of that, with a normalization of these crazy policies that have gotten us to where we are, I think we have a healthier world. You know, unfortunately, um, it's tough on a lot of people um, dealing with these errors of the past, but I think uh, the sun rises on the horizon. So we're in uncertain and uneven times. Um, we have a clip right now from Gregory Freeman, who is with Invest Vancouver, and, and, and he says, uh, well, Amy, could you roll that clip, please? The export-focused uh, clip, please. Focus on areas that are growing, that are export-oriented, places where we, have, where we have established strengths, where with a little more uh, coordination, cooperation, and investment, that we could elevate the growth trajectory. I think if you look at, for example, the life sciences, uh, we look closely at that industry, it's a huge strength for our region, it's growing quickly. Um, there's what we, when you ask, like, what do we need? Well, the limiting factors there are talent and access to specialized spaces like wet labs. And so we need to make sure that they, we build wet labs so they have access to it. And on the talent side, we're going to need to make sure that we're training a number, a sufficient number of people, that we are retaining the people that we do train, and that we're attracting, whether it's through immigration or reaching out and, and finding pathways for foreign students who are studying at our universities to stay here after graduation and work for these firms. To the extent that we can expand that labor pool, that's the thing that's attracting the firms, that's, that's underwriting the growth, if you will, in these sectors. And those things are, the, are critical to um, continuing that trajectory. Sean, uh, let's go to Slido right now. You've got a comment and let's put it out here for different members of the panel to respond to. And then, Jock, I know you want to uh, respond to what uh, Gregory's just said here as well. There's a question here, Stuart, from uh, Steve Fleck. 
We need to be more efficient in getting projects to market. LNG is a sad example of our processes causing delay that has caused us to miss a terrific economic <coughs> opportunity. What are and should we be doing to address this productivity issue? Minister, how would you like to jump in and start there, and then we'll, get, and then we'll go to Jock. I mean, we, we did uh, have the largest investment in, in LNG in this province in the history of, of Canada, actually. Um, so it, it's, uh, we managed to get it to fruition, and, and we are looking at other investments while also maintaining the, making sure that we have the, the guidelines in place to because we have to have a good clean economy at the same time and and you know as I said um, our ESG po policies are what is attracting investors to BC and and uh, we've had significant interest from investors across North America and, and as well as Europe who want to invest in BC and, and are buying bonds significant uh, values of bonds because they they like what we're doing with the economy but also socially and government so governance as well and our you know the I, I recognize that um, government works in sometimes slow ways. I mean, that's been a frustration, I think, for many of us, especially when we were first elected in 2017 in a minority government, and we were trying to get things done, and it was uh, frustrating. But uh, at the same time, you have to, there has to be due diligence to do things right. Um, you mess things up, and you, and you lose that investment. It's, it's not worth it. So it's, uh, it's worth it to have that due diligence so we can uh, attract the investors that uh, he was just talking about. The, I mean, we have one of the biggest growing, t uh, fastest growing tech sectors in in North America right now in BC because people are interested in, in coming here and so it's uh, but we do need the the jobs we do need the the people with the experience and the labor and so that's part of what we're doing with post secondary is to make sure that we that we're training those people in BC to make sure that they can they can work in in those jobs and I know there's a a company in Vernon that just you know would advertise for a number of people there and some of it was tech and they were you know trying to get people to come and work for this new company and they didn't have housing so we're you know, we're housing is a whole nother issue that we're working on to make sure that we can uh, that not only are we are attracting people here but that they have places to live and that's a whole nother issue that we can get to but yeah definitely so, Jock, uh, we hear uh, Gregory Freeman say we need to be investing in what will allow us to export into the future, and it's coupled with this question about uh, the pace at which we can get LNG to market. Um, your thoughts on on sort of the, this combination of topics? Yeah. Well, I think uh, Canada. This is more of a Canadian problem than a than a made in BC problem. Uh, the our reputation has taken a beating. Uh, let's be honest. In global markets over the past decade. Not not in every sector, but for anybody doing what I would call large-scale industrial investment or infrastructure, particularly linear infrastructure investment, uh, Canada is on the verge of becoming a no-go zone for, for private sector capital. You can still get stuff done, but it'll have to be either undertaken or underwritten in some way by government. And, and we're seeing the Canada Infrastructure Bank as one vehicle for doing that, provincially-owned crown corporations, like we have with BC Hydro in our province doing major capital investments. The TMX pipeline, which we all own now uh, as taxpayers because private capital uh, unloaded it. So these, these kind of high profile examples of how Canada is really kind of struggling to get big things built are really rever reverberating in the markets and, and they've hurt us a lot. Um, and you know, even federal cabinet ministers will kind of privately admit this, although I haven't seen 
I haven't seen too many publicly admit it uh, to date. So that's one problem. That's not the entire economy, though. The, you know, Gregory talked about exports, and I, I strongly agree with him. As a small open economy, we should really be looking at almost all of our microeconomic <coughs> and industrial policies through an export lens. Just to put some numbers on it, last year, BC exported $83 billion worth of goods and services to international markets in an economy that's valued at less than $300 billion. So it's a big, big chunk of what makes our place tick. Uh, it brings a huge amount of income, external income, into the province that we all benefit from as citizens and as, 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 as governments. 45% um, of that is natural resource products. Um, and we did an analysis recently looking out to the end of the decade. That share is unlikely to go down, frankly. Forestry will shrink for reasons the minister knows well, but energy and mining is likely to go up. So resources will continue to be close to half of BC's international exports of goods and services combined. It's worth remembering that. These are not, this is not a sort of sunset a sector. Technology is, is, is playing a bigger role, uh, but its current place is quite small in the overall export portfolio of the province. There is good growth potential. Uh, it's not just about training people, it's about attracting the talent that will be wants to live here and pay our housing costs and pay our high tax rates. That's a real issue for BC and for Canada generally, but I think we can puzzle our way through it. We also have some big service export engines. International tourism is, is an important one. The gateway sector, the port rail economy that services our, our trading industries, both importing and exporting, that's a huge generator of export earnings for BC. The film and TV production industry, the single fastest growing industry in British Columbia in the 10 years up to the COVID pandemic. Um, so it's a good diversified portfolio of sectors. Um, and I think policymakers uh, really want to be looking at a lot of the decisions they're making through the lens of how will this will help BC export focused businesses succeed, grow, establish, hire more people. That's the single most important lens, in my view, to use in analyzing a lot of the kind of microeconomic policies that government engages in, because we need a strong, growing, vibrant export economy here if we're going to maintain a high standard of living. And our performance, Canada has really been struggling on that dimension, uh, by the way. Uh, Canada has been retreating from global markets compared to our peer jurisdictions. The share of exports in Canadian GDP has lagged well behind that of many other advanced economies over the past 20 years. Somewhat surprising finding. We have a paper on our website, that, uh, shameless promotion, uh, www.bcbc.com, <laughs> that goes into all this uh, in, in some detail. BC's done a little bit better, uh, actually, but, uh, but we still have a long ways to go, I think, to put the foundations in place to assure our future prosperity in terms of the vibrancy of the export sectors. Harold Monroe. Uh, oh, hang on one second, Harold. Walter, you have... Uh, yeah, no, I was just going to add to that uh, on a, uh, adding to some of the positive uh, content that Jock delivered there. Um, the good news is we have a lot of what the world wants and what the world needs across sectors. Um, and so whether it's the talent uh, pools that we have here or the natural resources uh, and 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 the challenge ahead of us is to how do, how do we reduce the regulatory burdens and speed up the regulatory process? And I think we're in an environment right now where, and you're going to hear this theme uh, throughout throughout the evening here, um, where we can use technology to to enable a lot of those solutions. So hopefully, uh, as 
policymakers were thinking not just of policy but the tools to expedite those processes. It's good that we have a well-considered policy environment where we're thinking about ESG, where we're thinking about uh, indigenous uh, rights in UNDRIP, and UNDRIP, and it's putting together a regulatory environment that's, uh, that is, though, uh, enabled by uh, solutions and tools to move quicker. Uh, investment really doesn't like uncertainty and, and slowness in process, and until we fix that, we're gonna face challenges. But the, the good news is we have a lot of what the world wants and what the world needs. You agree? Investment wants certainty? Sorry, what was that? Investment wants certainty. You agree? Well, absolutely. But, you know, part of what I was thinking there is we've become, and, and this is, again, driven by these ultra-low interest rates, we've become a country of real estate speculators. If you look at um, real estate investment as a percentage of GDP, the chart is upward rising to the right. Like it's just become a bigger, bigger part of our economy. On the other hand, if you look at investment in, in, in equipment and machinery and research and development, it's going in the other direction. We're not investing in our future. Now I'm hopeful that um, with support of government and a more normal interest rate environment, we stop speculating and we start investing in our future. Harold, sorry, Harold Monroe, Editor-in-Chief, Vancouver Sun. Yes, thank, thanks, Stuart. The previous speakers touched on exports. I was going to ask the minister about that because we need investment from the federal government in port expansion and rail expansion. We seem to be, I mean, it, it's a major bottleneck and we keep hearing about it again and again, getting goods in and out of the country. What is the province's relationship right now with the federal government in that regard? And what are your expectations, uh, you know, getting the, the, the port expanded? And Well, we're working on it. Um, the ministers are, have been actively lobbying the, the federal ministers. There's continuous discussions because we recognize how important it is to the province. It's also, I, I think, the province is in a, in a good position with exports because uh, we have such a diverse uh, diversity of, of where we export to. I mean, uh, other provinces are highly dependent on the U.S. and we're not, And uh, so, but we do need the ports. And, and so I know that uh, Minister Fleming, that's a continuous discussion with him as, as Minister of Transportation and Investment. Um, Minister Bailey has also been having those conversations as well as as a Premier. Um, I mean, we all raise it when we have the opportunities for federal, provincial, territorial meetings um, because we recognize that it's it's one of the big issues in this province is, is the transportation sector. And that's why we also invested considerable dollars. And I mean, they, um, the flood of 2021 the, that was a, a huge eye-opener for everybody that how important the roads were the the ports were and and for the entire country and so the federal government has come on board somewhat but uh, they can always come on board more it doesn't matter what what we're doing we are reaching out to them continually to say you need to be partners in this and they have started with with some investments but we still i mean if you've got anybody has insights on that they they're we're more than happy to uh, have you share them with us. Could I comment? Uh, the federal government's been raised. I can't resist. The, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the government of Canada, I, I would say, is, is floundering in terms of any kind of strategy to build a productive, competitive, innovative Canadian economy. Their basic economic strategy is to grow the population. We, we have the most aggressive immigration targets of any advanced economy. <coughs> 
Last year, we the population grew by one million, more than one million people in Canada, mostly due to primarily a mixture of permanent and temporary immigration. Immigration is good. It delivers a lot of benefits to the country. In and of itself, it's not the foundation for building a productive, competitive, or innovative economy. If it were, we'd be doing a lot better uh, than we actually are at the moment. Uh, in Canada, the, the federal government's industrial development strategy, yes, they invest some, not enough, uh, in transportation. I mean, transportation infrastructure is actually under their jurisdiction, unlike many of the things Mr. Shuro's government want to muck around with, which are actually provincial jurisdiction. Transportation is theirs, um, and they should be doing more and a better job in it. Instead, we get $16 billion of your money being invested to attract one Volkswagen battery manufacturing plant into Ontario. 16, I mean, I don't care what kind of cost-benefit analysis you're going to do, what kind of assumptions you're going to bring to the table. That is a horrifically bad deployment of taxpayer capital. We've decided to get into a subsidy war with the United States to attract EV manufacturers and other green technology companies. That is a war we will lose. We will be broke uh, long before we discovered that. The Americans will, you know, are going to throw much more money at it than we do. And they have a more attractive business environment separate from the issue of subsidies and incentives. So I think the federal government strategy on this um, is, is something we, particularly in Western Canada, we should be quite concerned about because the vast majority, almost all of this money, is going to get poured into the EV supply chains, batteries, all that. It's, it's almost all going to go into Ontario and Quebec, and there won't be much left. Uh, frankly, to support our, our industries here. So I, I think, I, you know, it's a challenging time. I have some sympathy for the federal government. They did need to respond in some manner uh, to the Inflation Reduction Act passed in the United States uh, about a year ago and the $400 billion and counting of U.S. subsidies aimed at exactly the same industries. But the real beneficiaries of this will not be us as taxpayers and workers. It will be the shareholders of the companies that are receiving <coughs> Of these extraordinary uh, fiscal subventions from government. So that's probably not a good place to be, but that's where we're headed at the moment. Krista, you're keen, yeah, to, I, you <laughs> keen know, to comment here. Again, wh why is she talking? But, um, you know, I, uh, I listen. So speaking of being productive, I don't bother talking to the federal government anymore. It's just literally, it's not a productive use of my time. Just that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but what I am going to say is that, you know, when we're attracting people to our province, and I listen to productivity, what does that mean? It means they're produ we're producing more per hour, we're, we're more efficient, more effective. Great. So when we're selling our province to, to young people that are, that are coming here, what do we sell? We sell skiing, we sell sailing, we sell skateboarding, we sell recreation and the recreation opportunities here. So guess why people are coming to the province? Because they want work-life balance. And I have kids of my own who are in the tech sector, and they have figured out that if you're happy uh, as an employee and you're doing things that you love, you're actually going to be better at work. And that we see that in our sector as well. If people are happy and, and doing the things they like to do and not working themselves to death like my generation did, they actually are more effective and more productive at work. You just have to make sure they have the right met metrics and you're, and you're holding everybody accountable for the performance. But, you know, that's just my perspective. Harold, you had a follow-up question? Well, I... It'll come on. Just, you oh, can... Sorry. Yeah. It's a, I think it's appalling that you can't rely on the federal government and everyone seems to be saying the same thing. And yet all of our money is flowing back to the federal government and very little is coming back to us. I wanted to ask about housing 
because we know how you've all talked about how important that is in housing affordability. The federal government said they were going to invest a bunch of money across the country in, in housing. Has BC seen any of that yet? Has it, has it seen a plan? Not yet, but we're working on I mean, case in point is, is Indigenous housing. I mean, the federal government is responsible for Indigenous housing on, on uh, in community, and uh, the conditions are appalling. And, and who pays for the, uh, the aftermath of uh, people not having proper housing? It's the provincial government. So we said we can't do this anymore. So we invested in, in housing on, uh, in communities for indigenous nations. We're the only province doing it. And we've been saying to the feds, you have to come on board. We've done this because we're saving money in the long run because we, we pay for the costs, as I said. And it's, yeah, yeah, we're going to get to you. But it's, I mean, it's a fight. I mean, it's a, I mean, I was in children and families and we were having discussions with uh, the federal government about uh, the, the costs of uh, providing services that they should be providing, that we provide, because you have to do it. Because you can't, the cost is is too great for us in the long run if we don't do it. And uh, same with forestry. I mean, we, uh, you know, trying to get them to come on board. We finally got them to come on board with um, em emergencies, like forest fires, because they had to. Um, and for the floods, they've, they've come on board. They've actually helped, you know, funding for the aftermath of that. And also they saw the the aftermath of what happened with the ports and the roads and, and the flooding. Um, so, I mean, but we shouldn't have to drag them kicking and screaming to the table. And, and we continue to lobby them, and, and uh, we sometimes have been successful and, and other times haven't, but we will continue to, to do that because, I mean, it's ridiculous when you think of it, how much uh, they should be providing and, and aren't. And we just need to continue to lobby them in that matter. But some of it they have come on board on, and we know there's going to be funding for housing. We know there's going to be funding for transportation. It's just a matter of, of how much. And what's frustrating is the amount that goes back east that doesn't come out west, as Jock has referred to. Um, I mean, we have a EV plant going to be here, a battery plant that's going to happen here in the, in the lower mainland. Uh, we, we, they came on board with investment for it, but it's um, not nearly as much as what's invested in Ontario, for instance. And nature of the beast, but uh, we will we will care we will continue to to lobby and make sure we're getting our fair share here because it is frustrating. Murray, I don't envy all levels of government on the housing file. None of them are going to fix the problem as long as central banks keep inflating the value of assets. During the pandemic, house prices went up 45% in Canada and the US. Was that necessary? Like, does that help solve the housing crisis? No, it creates it. And we've been doing this for years and we have to stop doing it. But short of that ending, and I'm optimistic that it is ending um, because we're in a new era and we've got inflation and we have to deal with that. But governments of all levels have been trying to fix this file for a long time. And the reason nobody's been very successful is because it's a problem beyond their control. It's a problem created by 0% interest rates and printing money. I agree with that, Marie, and I would just add, uh, anything that governments do to stimulate housing demand, and, and, and this is where the federal policy uh, regime is, is completely incoherent on its best days um, right now. Anything you do to stimulate demand, by definition, will drive up the demand and the price of housing. So governments should actually be looking to cool 
<laughs> the demand for housing rather than, than stimulate it. So that's point one. Point two is back to my comment on immigration. And I'm, I don't want to be critical of immigration. We need immigrants in Canada. Most of us are you know, maybe second or third or fourth generation Canadians or first generation. So the country was built by immigrants. But it's a question of numbers and policy planning and coherence again. So the federal government says it's worried about housing affordability. Well, you don't grow the population at the rate we're growing it if that's actually your concern. Because it's, you know, we had 130,000 people added to the BC population last year. And this is really exogenous from the BC government's point of view. It's not. It's not something that's being planned uh, around the cabinet table as such. Um, so we have to respond to that. That's 130,000 people that need a roof over their heads, as well as public services and, uh, and, and a variety of other things. And that, that's fine. We, we can manage that. But the scale at which it's happening, I think, makes it almost unmanageable. But for sure, um, higher interest rates, if that's where we end up coming out of this, this kind of current cycle, will help to tame some of the speculative demand on housing, perhaps. But if we're going to grow the population of our gateway cities at the rate we're doing right now, we will see continued, sustained, upward pressure on land values in big cities, and that will translate into higher, <coughs> not lower, housing costs. I'm quite convinced of that. Um, so the problem is not going to go away. We're not going to end up with affordable housing, certainly not in Metro Vancouver. We can maybe tame the increases that will otherwise occur. But there's no magic uh, solution, I think, given the environment we're in and given the policy settings that we've got in Canada right now. Walter, you want to jump in? Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure if I should venture into disagreeing with Jock. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, I, go I, ahead. I don't think, um, I'm not sure about uh, government um, uh, trying to dampen demand. I mean, that, that has been the approach of the past with uh, the various... Uh, taxes that have been uh, introduced to curb uh, foreign buyers, to curb uh, empty homes, uh, and 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 in fact, I think now with rising interest costs, there is uh, that that's also part part of the formula. But I think for the first time, uh, I'm seeing uh, concurrence among all stakeholders on the need to increase supply. And I think that's different because I've, I've, I don't remember being at a place where the province, the municipalities, and people at large agree that we need to intensify the use of land, uh, and uh, and build more housing. Uh, and I think that's I think generally that's accepted across the board. So I think there's hope there to um, take some of this uh, momentum and actually make it happen and increase supply. And we need to your point, Jock. We need a lot of supply with immigration, uh, with just the pent-up demand right now. Uh, the demand's there, and so we're gonna fix it only with supply. We have abundant land in BC. It's all around um, land use policy, and, it, and it's not just residential, by the way. We have an industrial land crisis uh, that is curbing the growth of the economy. So I think land use and a focus on supply is key. I agree with that, Walter, but I would just note that housing starts are declining. As you, as those very words are coming from you, housing starts in BC and in Canada are declining this year compared to last year, and all the forecasts I've seen say they will decline again in 2024. So we're not actually, and it takes time. Um, no, I agree. The construction industry has very low unemployment rates, so there's not a lot of resources in terms of skilled tradespeople, contractors, 
project managers, architects, other people who work in the housing supply system, they're not sitting at home waiting for a call to build more housing. We're actually operating at full employment. Yeah, so, and, 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 so and, inter- and increasing interest costs are, are adding to that. Yes, so it the is. cost the cost of producing and manufacturing real estate is going up, no question, and the capacity to deliver supply. Therefore, is affordability constrained. will be tough, tough to to address. I mean, you have to try for sure, but no one should think that we're going to that you know the cabinet is going to meet in Victoria tomorrow and come up with a plan that makes housing affordable in Metro Vancouver in the next five years. Not going to happen. But you are right. One thing you can't you can't tax your way to affordable housing either. So I do I do agree with that. Mr. <laughs> Minister Callum is rolling over in his home right now. <laughs> Krista, I know that you wanted to jump in. Back to Jock's original point about federal government's responsibility to build transportation infrastructure. You know, transit solves most of my housing problems. If I can get a, you know, low to mid income wage earners with a decent hour commute, um, you know, I, they can they can afford to rent or own uh, somewhere within within work. So, you know, where's the federal government on transit? Because I think that's that's going to help. It doesn't help the cost of construction, but you know, at, back in the 70s, we used to invest in housing as a as a public. You know, we subsidized the cost of housing, and we're you know now seeing we've we've seen the social housing being a huge benefit to people for for many many years. My own family included. And that's the government simply got out of that business about 30 years ago, and they need to they need to return. So in the mix here, of course, is rental housing. We've got this huge increase in immigration. Uh, we've got federal policies that make it challenging for new Canadians to buy a home in the first two years that they're here. So they have to rent. Uh, landlords are going, okay, we're being squeezed. We're not being able to build rental purpose housing. And they're asking, okay, well, what can you do, uh, especially from a tax perspective as you go into your next budget, to say, here's something that at least we can do to stabilize what that tax regime is going to look like or maybe even lower it. Is there anything that you can do? Yeah, there's a, there's lots that we can do, and Minister Callan is is working on it because we recognize it. I mean, housing is one of the biggest issues. You know, we're looking at uh, at transit or oriented uh, density, and and actually. Um, looking at where is transit going to be expanded to and, and going and buying up the land around the transit uh, areas and saying, okay, we're going to make, uh, we're going to build housing here that's going to be uh, high density housing, looking at uh, changing. Um, changing regulations so that, you know, and say, like everybody had the dream of the single family home with the white picket fence. Well, not anymore. We need more density. We need to look at those homes and, and okay, let's take that one house and, and build four or five homes on that house. Some of the new initiatives that we're looking at, right? I mean, there, there's a lot of things that, I mean, I wasn't being facetious. I mean, he is he is working full out to try, you know, what can we do as a, as a government to support people? What kind of initiatives can we bring in to support developers to, to build the rental housing? And, and we're doing that we're you know looking at people who have a home that might want to add a second suite to it and, and and giving support to that so we're looking at different things that we can do in that way because we know that um we, we do need to work with developers we do need to work with municipalities and walter's right it's the first time ever that uh, i think all levels of government are working together to say what can we do together to uh, to invest in housing i mean when we gave the growing uh, bc's fund from we gave a billion dollars to municipalities across the province from the um, the surplus 
And we asked municipalities to please consider investing in ways that you can expand your housing. So if that means infrastructure, roads, sewer, whatever, water, things that you don't usually get grants for, and they're not really sexy things to get grants for, you know, to, to invest in those things so that you can in, enhance the, the housing. But building close to transit, it's huge. It's huge for many people, especially in the lower mainland. And, and like renters, I mean, there's considerable amount of people like people don't realize how many renters there are in this province there's a high percentage of people that rent especially in the lower mainland where it's yeah, they, you know expensive and so they you know the little bit the rental rental credit we're providing is, is a small contribution to help people but it, it is a it is something that's going to help but um, every my god every other day, Minister Callan's coming to me with another idea. So, you know, there's the latest one is the flipping taxes to prevent people from doing exactly what you were talking about, you know, flipping houses. But there's always something, and and we are some of them we're implementing. Some we've been looking at other countries. Um, Japan has a, a great program where they a company has done it, not government. A company is uh, uh, goes to people with a single family home, builds a. a duplex, triplex, quad, you know, four or five uh, homes on, on the one building, the owner gets the upper floor, the upper uh, housing uh, apartment for the rest of their life and, and a portion of the rental from the, the rest of the, of the rental uh, units. And uh, the company takes care of it. They take care of everything and they build the home. They, and it's, it's, it's taken off considerably across the country for people that want to, you know, they're ready to get out of their single family home and, and uh, not have all the work that goes with it. So you know, we're looking at all kinds of ideas and, and looking at seriously implementing them and, and working with municipalities right across the province. So I've just got to add a voice from the opposition party here, uh, Todd Stone from BC United. You know, he says yes. Everybody goes. We want to invest. We want we want investment into the into the long term, uh, but we're not necessarily the most attractive jurisdiction to invest in. Jock, you touched on that. Amy, can you uh, roll that clip from Todd Stone, please? We've got to get serious about uh, attracting investment to this province, uh, but you don't do that by uh, continuing to layer costs and costs and delay and delay onto uh, decisions uh, uh, that are required for projects to move forward in British Columbia. So whether you're talking uh, energy, whether you're talking uh, LNG, whether you're talking forestry, mining, any, any of these major industrial projects, which by the way, uh, most of the, the big projects which are underway today, uh, whether it be a Site C or Trans Mountain, uh, um, uh, the uh, LNG Canada's project, uh, you know, a, a few other pipelines. Most of those projects are, are coming to, to their conclusion. Uh, there are very few projects of the same scope and scale that are coming in behind them. He's right. Uh, there are not uh, organizations in around the world not lining up to invest in, in Canada and in British Columbia. Um, what can we do to change that? Or do we have that ability? Is it a federal level issue? Um, Walter, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, we're in a global business environment and um, business decides where, where, where to invest. Um, we're, this is gonna sound like another shameless plug, but a, a couple of weeks ago we released uh, our latest edition of uh, competitive alternatives. There's a website. I don't quite uh, know the, uh, the the URL, but I will share it with you, uh, Stu. But what it does is it compares different jurisdictions and uh, particularly global cities across the globe. 
And it's, it's a complicated issue because it isn't just federal policies, it isn't just provincial policies or municipal policies, it's the entire investment climate. And it's looking at everything from cost of labor to labor taxes, to income taxes, to regulatory, to transportation costs, to property taxes. It's, it's all, all of it together and it depends by sector too. Manufacturing might look different than a corporate head office or than a digital media a company um, and and uh, but business does look at the competitive environment for sure and there is a lot more that we could be doing uh, in in Vancouver and in BC to attract investment and you know having the highest personal income tax uh, in North America bar you know we're tied with some of the other provinces it does not do much to attract um, skilled workers Right, and so that's a challenge: attracting uh, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, uh, scientists, uh, or retaining them. Uh, is another thing, um, and having one of the highest corporate tax rates in North America is also not uh, a competitive advantage. So I think we would do better as a region, and this is not a you know, it's, it, it transcends politics. Just it's it's it, it it's really numbers and analytics and policy to sit down and look at what is our competitive advantage and what do we need to do to position ourselves as a small open economy to attract and retain investment. That's the other um, opportunity and challenge that we have as a province is to take the wonderful companies that we incubate here and allow them to scale and allow them uh, to, to uh, remain uh, headquartered here to create that sort of vibrant uh, economic activity that we all want. Well, that was one of the big challenges that came up in our last month's uh, conversations live around life sciences. We're brilliant at incubating these companies, but when it comes to growing to scale, um, it's as though the regulatory, the investment environment, uh, the uh, availability to industrial lands makes it almost impossible to grow to scale. But if those sectors could, the return to the province would be extraordinary. Minister, I, th I think you wanted to jump in there a moment ago. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we've had considerable in investment in the province, and, and so it's uh, they're coming because of, I mean, we, we have one of the lowest small business uh, tax rates in, in the country. Um, we have some of the, you know, People want to come and live here. They come here and they and they immigrate. I keep asking people, "Why are you coming here?" And they, because they like the the quality of life. They like what we're doing here. They like the, you know, the supports. But they, you know, they've it's um, the number of businesses that have have actually come to to BC have been fairly significant in in the last uh, three four years and. Cheat and look at my number. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but I it's. A, have you got your own numbers? Yeah, yeah. But your numbers probably don't agree with mine, Jock. No, let's not talk about your numbers. I'll pull my numbers out. But it, it has been fairly significant. I know um, Minister Bailey, Brenda Bailey, has been. I mean, she's the yeah, yeah, yeah. huge uh, advocate for the life sciences sector and the tech center sector. But we also, I mean, we've got a investment in a gold mine. It's been years since there's been an investment in a gold mine. Um, we've had companies come in that uh, um, Kruger came from back east and bought the pulp mill in, in Kamloops um, and invested there. So they wanted to invest in BC. They wanted to be here. Um, they like the the labor the the fact that we have labor that uh, the qualified labor i mean it's, it's so there's there's lots of positives as well that uh, people are coming for and and it's um you know it, it's something that uh, we probably don't talk about enough obviously because it's uh, 
people tend to go towards the negative as opposed to what the positive things that are actually happening in the province. On the scaling, I mean, Walter mentioned this, and it kind of gets to Todd Stone's question, which you know I'm going to try and answer now. But um, <laughs> you know, B, B, David Williams and I did a paper recently looking at head offices, and uh, we noted that um, BC has 14% of Canada's population, but only 8% of the head office jobs in the country. Why is that important? Well, head office jobs tend to pay well. Uh, well above average, and so you want to kind of grow as many of those as you can to expand the tax base, uh, give people the income. The other side of the cost of living challenge is not just that costs are going up, it's also what's happening to people's earned incomes. So we can get more high-income jobs here, that would you know, help the kind of at the margin. So I think we've got a lot of work to do here, and this started long before your government was, was elected, this challenge around head offices. We're actually losing them rather than, than gaining them. And... Um, we have lots of small companies, but we don't scale that, uh, that successfully. So I really think, again, a policy focus on what do we need to do to scale more of our BC firms. Uh, we have 500,000 companies or businesses in BC. 430,000 of them have zero to four paid employees. Only 8,600 have more than 50 paid employees, and barely 1,000 of those 500,000 businesses have 1,000 employees. Uh, in, in BC. So this is a real issue. So we could be looking at the tax system, where in BC the small business tax rate is 2%, the, the provincial component. As soon as you hit half a million dollars a year, it goes up by six times to 12%. So it's kind of a disincentive to grow. The federal, the federal tax also goes up at, at a half a million dollars of profit. The employer health tax exempts your first $500,000 of payroll and it applies at a lower rate, up to 1.5 million of payroll. So there's another signal being sent by tax policy that small is good, and growth actually is something we're going to penalize in terms of the tax system. So there are some things we could be looking at in the design of our rate schedules on the business side in particular that I think will create a little bit better environment to nurture business growth and get more of our small companies to expand to the point where we would actually count them as a head office, because you have to have a certain size of business to even reach the threshold. And then on the personal side, I would just note that I, I know somebody who's a police detective in the city of Vancouver, very senior, and when he works an overtime shift, he bumps up against a higher marginal tax rate than Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos pay in Seattle, because Washington State has no, no, no income tax at the state level, only the federal tax applies. So. Part of the challenge, Stu, of growing biotech head offices here will be that when you get past the founding stage where the researchers and innovators typically are locally in the market and are founding the company, when you try and bring in people to grow the business, people with the business skills to actually grow a company from small to mid-sized to large, often they have to be sourced outside of the local market here. Um, and when they have a look at our tax structure, it's a bit of a challenge to get them to, 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 to want to come here. So th again, there are things at the margin we could be doing, I think, to create an environment where we could grow more of our BC companies to a place where they would count as a head office. That would create a healthier economy here long term, no doubt about it. Sorry, just, yeah. just to add um, to what the minister said earlier, I think we do have uh, a lot to be excited about in, in the province in terms of sectors that are, are exciting. So we talk, you, talk, you mentioned life sciences, 
you know, uh, globally a hub really here in Vancouver that is world class. Uh, but there's other sectors as well, the whole frontier technology space, including um, AR, VR, we're one of the largest hubs, again, globally, our gaming industry, our film uh, industry, our ag tech and agriculture sector, our clean tech sector, there's a lot here that we have going for us. And so uh, I, I don't think there's any debate over that. It's how do we create the conditions to allow these businesses to thrive both grow and scale domestically and attract uh, more uh, global entrants to participate in the excitement that's going on in BC. Walter, you anticipated where I was going. We're just about out of time, and I'm hoping, uh, playing off of a little comment that Jock made at the beginning, he says, you know, I'm optimistic that a did year I? out from now, yeah, you did, even though so much of what you were saying was pessimistic. <laughs> I'm hoping that there's some uh, ray of light that uh, each of us uh, see uh, and on the, on the horizon. And Murray, I'm going to last with you. Yeah, I know you did. So, <laughs> um, and Murray, I'm going to finish with you asking you, and would this be a time that you would look to invest? But we'll come back to you. What ray of light did, uh, of hope and light do you see ahead for us, Minister Conrad? Well, I see a province that um, people want to invest in, that people want to live in, that uh, people want to be here. And, and yeah, we, we, we have some tough times ahead of us. But at the same time, I know that uh, people want to be here and, and work together and, and, and deal with those tough times. It's not like we're trying to be Pollyannish and bury them under the table. We know there's tough times and we have to deal with them. And, and we are as a government, but I think we are as a province. And I think people in this province are here because they want to be here. They like the lifestyle, they like what they're doing here, and, and uh, I think that that, uh, that bodes well for the future. Um, when we look at the investment in, in trades and training and, and post-secondary for, for young people in this province, it, it's significant. I was just at a grad ceremony with my uh, one of my grandkids on the weekend, and it was the first time in, in a number of years, I've been going to grad ceremony since 05 when I was first elected, and this was the first year in a number of years that majority of the kids were actually going to post-secondary or trades or you know it was not like uh, there's you know and, and some that actually said oh I'm going to work and I've got they had a job and they were going to work somewhere but it was it, usually it's it, you know you see young people that are just not and oh, we're not sure what we're going to do yet blah 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 but, but this was the first time in a number of years that I've actually seen that and it really gave me hope and just to hear how you know, they you talk to young people and, and they're hopeful. They're they think you know they want to do things in this province and and they they look at the different uh, uh, opportunities and and they're they're positive. So I um, I take my a lot of my input. I mean, you take it from people that you know experts like Jock. I mean, we have our economic forecast council who who warned me about things. And but then you also talk to to people that are you know living in this province and and the ones who are who are struggling and what can we do to help and and then talking to young people that that ground me and and you you know that uh, you know things things aren't as as you know there's hope. Um, you know, talking to people on, on uh, disability pension who got their first increase in years and and they they said it's made a a difference to their lives. I talk to moms who, you know, that are, you know, kind of for the first time have ten dollar a day childcare. And I talked to a mom downtown East Side. Said she's the first time in her life she's been able to buy fresh fruits and vegetables for her kids. And, th and that makes a big difference. I mean, that that's not a multi million dollar 
thing, but that is something that is substantial that you know you're affecting change and you know the different things that you can do, the small things that you can do that add up. And then you know the and then the big things. I mean, going on these investment tours, talking to people who really want to invest in in BC. They they recognize the benefits here. They recognize what we're doing, and they 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 want to buy our bonds. They uh, the last trip we we got over uh, 1.5 1.6 billion in in investment in BC. We're heading out on another one, and and people want to invest. They like what's happening here. They like the you know, what we're doing with the environment. They especially like what we're doing with indigenous peoples and, you know, and, and they they like our, our social programs. So um, yes, there's there's issues that we have to deal with and we recognize that and we're, you know, as we're looking at those issues and what can we do to, to, to make a difference and uh, that's what we'll continue to do because we know that you can't just sit back and stick our head in the sand and say, oh my God, let's hope this passes soon because it, it's, as Jock says, it's not going to, but I think it, it will pass a little sooner. So. I'm going to jump to Krista first, then come back to you, Jock, okay? Uh, you know, the elephant in the room for me always is we can't rely on one sector to fix all the problems. I know you guys have heard that many times. But I really, I've worked at the intersection of government and private business for a long time, and there are so many more opportunities when we are all working together. And, you know, Gordon Campbell, long time ago, said, "You know, once you once you factor in how much we're paying in interest and how much we pay for healthcare, there's not a lot of money left, actually, to do the other things we want to do. So it is going to take all three components of the economy to make things work. So I think, um, you know, from a nonprofit point of view, you know, we are actually very innovative here, and we have American colleagues and colleagues coming from New York to take a look at what we're doing." And uh, you know we do have really good ideas, and I think that if I think that sometimes it takes a you know an expert, somebody from out of town with slides, to actually you know help us understand that we're we are actually you know doing some things right, and I think we are, and I think we have to I think we have to generate positivity by highlighting those things and not just always whining about like I do, uh, unfortunately, about what government is or is not doing. John. If you want slides, we, we're in town. we got lots of slides. Um, advising a SWOT analysis for BC, just focusing on the strengths. So one, uh, our geographic location. Uh, you know, Canada's gateway to Asia, which is 60% of the world's population and will be eventually more than 60% of world economic activity. So that's good. Uh, second, we're on geography. We're on the West Coast of North America. So we have a lot of trade linkages with these dynamic kind of West Coast American states, that's, that's a positive. Uh, second is our people. Uh, we do have a very high level of what economists call human capital here, and it's, it's arguably getting better over time. That's kind of a foundation that I think we can build on. Third, we've got a tremendous natural resource base. Um, you're one of the few members of your cabinet and, 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 and government caucus that actually represents a constituency that's heavily rooted in the resource economy, but agri-food, Energy of all kinds, minerals, metals, forestry, really are very kind of fundamental baskets uh, for our export economy here, and we've got all of them. Um, and they've been foundational in the past, and they can continue to make a contribution. And then fourth, we have an, a kind of a resilient entrepreneurial culture. I think it's partly because we don't rely on the federal government much. Um, I lived in Ontario for a long time, and there's kind of an automatic tendency in central Canada to look to the central government for good ideas, money, uh, leadership, policy initiatives, and so on. We don't do that as much here, and it's probably a strength, frankly, 
long term, it makes us more resilient. So yeah, there are some things that we can build on, Stu. And uh, and I think once we get through this kind of strange pandemic-related economic cycle, uh, we'll end up in a better place than than we are today. Happy to hear that, John. Murray, final thoughts from you. Um, <laughs> You know, I think we've reached, a, I think there's a strong consensus here in the room that we have lots of challenges. Um, but I don't think we should underestimate our collective resilience and ability to uh, overcome those challenges. When I started at my firm, Audlin Brown, uh, back in 1994, Canada was, was in what they called the debt trap. Uh, we, were, we were drowning in our debt, our federal debt. And Barron's Magazine uh, labeled us Mexico North. And, and frankly, on paper, it didn't look like there was any way out. Uh, the point of the story is that we overcame those challenges and have come a long way. And, you know, um, so I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we overcome our challenges. Uh, I know you were going to ask me, is now a good time to invest? It's always a good time to invest. I tell people two things. Number one, start early because it's not a straight line exercise. Your savings compound over time, so it grows exponentially. So the earlier the start, uh, the earlier you start, the better it is down the road. And secondly, treat your investments uh, like your home. Um, you know, people don't sit around and say, hey, let's sell the house because there might be a recession. They stick in their house through thick and thin, and that's why they accumulate. Most people accumulate most of their wealth in their home. And uh, if they treated their stocks investments the same way, they'd be wealthier. I like the definition of an optimist that goes, uh, you're fully aware of all of the challenges, but you believe that there are solutions to those challenges. It's not that you're naive to them, but you believe that you can find solutions. And I want to remain optimistic uh, uh, on the same note as Murray, that we do have that ability collectively to find solutions. And, you know, to echo your thoughts, Jock, uh, about the entrepreneurial spirit in British Columbia, I think it's through that entrepreneurialism that there's so many small businesses, this collective of people who believe that we can create better outcomes. I want to thank you all for your time tonight. I know that we haven't solved the problem, but we've highlighted a number of the issues. Uh, give a lot of people uh, food for thought here. So thank you very much. Our panelists, once again, were Minister Conroy, Murray Leith, Krista Thompson, Walter Pella, and Jock Finlayson. So we're back in September to dig into AI, artificial intelligence, that is, Minister. Uh, <laughs> it's an invaluable tool. Uh, is it? Or have we given birth to an entity that we may come to fear? Uh, I'm going to end on a thought from uh, Gregory Freeman when I was talking to him. He said, you know, AI is not uh, what's going to take your job. It's somebody who knows how to use AI that will take your job. Now, just before we go, I want to especially thank our sponsors and supporters one last time because without them, this important series just would not be. Our presenting sponsors tonight have been KPMG, Helijet, and Invest Vancouver. Our sponsors, ongoing sponsors, are Stem Cell Technologies, BD Development, Landlord BC, Polygon, the Digital Technology Supercluster, the BC Securities Commission, the Port of Vancouver, Fortis BC, and Research Co. And of course, the Vancouver Sun is our media partner. All of these organizations are also optimistic and believe that we need to be having these kinds of uh, discussions. And our supporters are the Surrey Board of Trade, Canadian Beef, and BCIT. Thank you all for your generous support, and thank you all 
for joining us tonight, both here in the studio and online. We'll see you again in September.